From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Three of the Trump administration's top health officials are in self-quarantine tonight after exposure to a White House employee with coronavirus. The commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration, Stephen Hahn, quarantined himself Friday night. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and Robert Redfield, the director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, both quarantined themselves Saturday. Politico reports all three men interacted with White House spokeswoman Katie Miller. She tested positive for COVID-19 on Friday. Amazon Web Services is protesting a judge's ruling that it and Microsoft should be able to submit new bids for the Defense Department's JEDI contract. AWS says the ruling is ambiguous and Microsoft is, quote, posturing in its accusations against AWS. FedScoop reports Microsoft accuses AWS of trying to slow down its work on JEDI on purpose. The Department of Veterans Affairs will follow a three-phase plan to go back to regular operations post-COVID. Facilities can start phase one of the plan once the number of patients with symptoms falls, fewer people test positive, and testing capacity increases. The VA will start up postponed services in phase two and allow visitors again in phase three. The Defense Department made more than $7 billion in improper payments in 2019. That's up more than $5 billion from 2018. The department says that's because of more rigorous auditing. Asif Khan's director in the financial management and assurance team at the Government Accountability Office. Asif, welcome. Thanks for coming back. What are you seeing in this trend in improper payments in, uh, from the Defense Department? Could it indeed be because they're just checking harder than they have before? Good morning, Francis. Um, I think that really is the case because uh, DOD's had pretty low estimates of improper payments uh, going back several years. Uh, as it stands, their estimates compared to the government-wide estimates is very low. It's a third of what the government-wide estimate is. Uh, compared to last year, the estimate jumped by $7 billion. So it does indicate that they're doing more rigorous estimation in certain of their programs. You and I have spoken for many years, Asif, about the, the, what the government, what the Pentagon would start to find as it more closely and more accurately audited its books. What are some of the other things that you have seen or expect to see as the department goes to year three, four, five in the out years of closing audits, even if they're not clean opinions yet? Right. I mean, just to catch you up, the department got a disclaimer of opinion in 2018 and 2019. Their 2020 audit is ongoing as we speak. The main issue is the internal controls environment. That is going to lead to a lot of uh, findings by the auditors. And some of these findings are deep-rooted, especially in their area of systems and IT. And those controls are the controls which lead to the problem, uh, which is causing the disclaimer of opinion and also lead to problems in improper payments. One of the thing, another thing that we've talked about on many occasions is that it may be eight, 10 years. I believe Secretary Norquist said at one point it could be 10 years before the department reaches clean opinions. Is this why, because some of these systems are old, some of these systems are deeply integrated into the operations of the department and yet are not turning out the kinds of data, the kinds of information that the department needs and that auditors need to reach clean opinions? 
Certainly, that is one of the key areas because processes, internal controls are all driven by system to a great extent. Uh, you can't find a single stream of transaction payments within Department of Defense, which is processed in one system from the beginning to the end when it's actually paid out and ultimately reported. Fixing those discrepancies, fixing those uh, lack of handoffs is going to take some time. It's going to take several years for that to be alleviated. Having said that, they don't have to wait till all these problems are alleviated before they begin to get an opinion. But to be able to sustain that and to be able to provide useful, reliable information and on an ongoing basis, the systems have to be rectified. You mentioned paying out, and one of the big areas in this fiscal year that the Pentagon will be paying out is through the CARES Act, the payments to defense industrial-based companies to uh, make their, to keep the supply chain open, basically. What do you see there as the potential risks for this money that's being injected into the DIB right now, Asif? There are two areas to look out for. <clears throat> One is the actual payments which have been appropriate by Congress, the funding that has been appropriate under the CARE Act. That's uh, just about $10.5 billion. Most of that money is going to go through the established payment streams that DOD has. So the risk on those payments that they may be invalid and, and inaccurate is the same as all the other payments, given the weak internal control environment there is in the Department of Defense. The other area is where the policy procedures and the rules have changed. To, uh, to accommodate the COVID uh, pandemic emergencies. And that's where the contracts have been modified in mass. Uh, DOD is trying to give liquidity to the contractors as such progress payments are being sped up. And also the payment cycle has been cut down to half to 15 days. So those are also added risks, as well as the payments being made under the Defense uh, Production Act. Now, I know it's too soon to make to do formal work in your office about those risks, but just based on the experience that you have from looking at these issues in other ways, what would be ways to mitigate that risk inside the department, Asif? The first one is to establish preventive controls, and the department is trying to do that because these findings keep coming up not only from our audits but also from more recent audits. Some similar, some simple checks like checks and balance and reconciling accounts between different ledgers, that is the key thing. The other one is to apply, establish detective controls to be able to detect payments which have been made improperly and then be able to recover them. And then just linking it back to the improper payments, it's very critical for department to come up with a more reliable estimate because that's going to indicate where the problems are which are causing improper payments. We have about a minute left. You mentioned some of these different controls that the department should implement, reconciling accounts and so on. Does the infrastructure exist to do that already? Or are these issues that the department is going to have to address through some kind of new structure? Some of these controls exist, but the department will have to establish several of these controls because as we speak, the department is also bringing new systems online. And whenever you change the systems, you'll have to reestablish the controls and also modify your business processes. So it'll be very important for the department to stay on board to make sure they have the existing controls function and the controls for the new systems are established and they're functioning as intended. Asif, great insight as always. Thanks very much for coming on. Thank you, Francis. Great. Up next, improving management in government. Straight ahead on Government Matters, six building blocks for managing quality. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
federal employee viewpoint survey says improving management has a lot of room for improvement itself. Six building blocks could make a big difference in your organization in improving management. John Kamensky is senior fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. John, welcome. Thanks for coming back on the program. You and uh, the IBM Center in Napa are writing about these six building blocks, which we'll talk about in a moment. What was the problem, though, that you and Napa wanted to solve for? Well, it was the IBM Center and the Senior Executive Association that are working on this together. And uh, what that came out was that uh, we think the government needs to think about effective management both now in this current historical moment, but as well for the longer term. Knowing how well different agencies are managed uh, would be a useful baseline for new agency leaders or in setting priorities for a new administration. So having benchmarks and allowing agencies to self-assess over time and compare to other agencies or to best practices, we think will help improve agency operations. My apologies to our friend Bill Valdez and his colleagues at SEA for mixing him up with Terry Girton and, and Napa. Um, there are six building blocks here. The first one is have it, the design of a measurement protocol serve as a learning opportunity. What's the learning opportunity there, John? Well, the thing is that we need to sort out the, the design issues and developing a management protocol for management quality in federal agencies, like who would sponsor such an initiative and which metrics are uh, best uh, management, uh, best ex exemplify management excellence and also, would this protocol have to be customized uh, based on an agency's size or the kind of mission it has, for example, whether it's uh, uh, law enforcement or uh, social services? The second building block is balance bottom-up with top-down in the design of a measurement initiative. Tell me what that means. Well, um, we uh, there's a recommendation in the report to create a task force to come up with um, metrics that would be useful to agencies. And we think that having a top-down uh, uh, development is helpful, whether it's from the center of government, uh, but the, there needs to be a bottom-up where the agencies that, uh, and the employees in the agencies need to be actively involved with developing this. This was a lesson that, that the authors of this report, uh, Jim Thompson and Alejandra uh, Medina from the University of Chicago, they found that uh, when they were looking at other countries, that th that having ownership is an important element to sustaining any kind of a measurement uh, protocol. The third building block is engaging the federal management community. That's a pretty big community. Who all do you yeah. consider to be part of that, John? Well, you have not only a senior executive association, but the Federal Management Association and uh, the National Academy for Public Administration and, and others. And the idea is to uh, use techniques like crowdsourcing or creating a community of practice so that it's not just a one-time development, but it's something that's uh, continually refined over time. And uh, the authors in their report say that it's at the program level and that those that are responsible for program delivery, that management quality is most important. The fourth building block is use the measurement initiative to rethink management. And as I read through this one, it struck me this is the old don't pave the cow path argument, right, John? Yes, yes. Um, since there's an opportunity to learn what other organizations are doing, and then especially in this time 
where the uh, COVID pandemic is creating uh, a real opportunity for agencies to rethink their management practices. It's not how well an organization is run based on the individual functions within the organization, but how they work together uh, collectively. And it's the, how the functional units and the support units and the program management uh, work ex internally as well as externally with their stakeholders. The fifth building block is evaluating the advantages and disadvantages of assigning the agency's grades. Now, I think our friend Robert Shea might argue with us, uh, argue with you about this one. Yeah, well, one of the things that the authors found was that when they looked at different countries as well as uh, past U.S. efforts like the program assessment rating tool that, that was used in the Bush administration in our country, uh, the question was, are grades an incentive or a disincentive? And, or, and if they're disincentive, do they wind up like encouraging gaming? And so the, the question is, is, is the initiative primarily for compliance and accountability? Is it for learning and improving? And, and so that was the, the tension that they found between different countries and different programs. Building block six, we have about 30 seconds left, John, is determining the degree of reliance to be placed on metrics. Why what might metrics not be a good idea or why might placing too much uh, reliance on them be a, b a bad idea? Well, having metrics, uh, for example, employee satisfaction or the quality of uh, mission support services is, is something that we've been doing in this, this country, but other countries used a series of interviews with managers and they found that the qualitative measures were also very helpful for improving agency operations. John, great work from the IBM Center for the Business of Government, the Senior Executives Association. Thanks very much for coming on to talk about it. Well, thank you very much for the invite. Take care. Up next, the supply chain implications of the coronavirus. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how far behind are contractors and how to get back on track. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. The coronavirus has slowed the supply chain, but it may provide agencies with an opportunity to build a new supply chain of the future. To look at the next normal in the government's supply chain, Greg Giddens, partner at Potomac Ridge Consulting, former executive director of the Secure Border Initiative Program Management Office at Customs and Border Protection. Greg, it's great to see you, my friend. Thanks for coming on. What's the opportunity that you see here that demand for PPE or something else has pushed in the supply chain to change it for the better for the future? Well, Francis, I think one of the things that has really going to push the supply chain for the future is a recognition of its global uh, impact. You know, whether it's even Brexit, uh, U.S.-China trade negotiations, hurricanes, the current pandemic, and there's lots of impacts that we see even with China's production uh, really decreasing back earlier in the year. Companies will now have to really look at the supply chain as a key part of doing their business. But they won't be able to look at it in a linear fashion anymore. Uh, it's not just a left to right process. It's very complicated. It's more like a network, uh, more like a web uh, of networked uh, nodes. And now the webbing needs to be information connections across the various nodes. So just like when a spider can tell when something tugs on a part of its webbing, 
a company now that understands their supply chain, they'll be able to see and sense what's happening in that supply chain across all those nodes. But that'll be hard. Uh, it's much harder than doing a, a regular supply chain. I grew up in Georgia and had, had more of my share of getting stuck with cars and trucks and tractors. We had a chain to pull those out. Uh, and it's really easy to analyze that chain. You can lay it out, look at the links, which ones are stretched, which one looks weak. You can position the chain around that. You can replace some links. Uh, that's pretty easy and straightforward. It's not that easy now for this web of interconnected uh, global value chain. So when you use that term and you use that analogy, it strikes me we shouldn't even call it a supply chain anymore. Supply network is probably the better word because there aren't links in that chain anymore. It is that web that you just laid out. We're thinking about it wrong, aren't we, Greg? I, I, I think you're absolutely right. It, it is a supply web. It's not just a chain anymore with discrete independent links that all travel in a linear fashion. It has multi-node spokes and hubs. So in a supply web environment then, in, if that's the next normal, what are the policy changes? What are the procedural changes? What are the organizational structural changes that a government agency should undertake to be able to accommodate that? So one of the things government agencies need to do is to make sure that they've elevated the responsibility for this supply network at the appropriate level. Uh, too many times in government agencies, they push down the chief logistics officer, uh, the person that typically be responsible for this supply web, down deep in the organization. They need to bring that up and make it really a strategic part of the organization. Uh, understanding that price is not always keen, you have to think about now resiliency, redundancy, uh, what are other factors in really being able to analyze uh, this web. And when they contract with vendors, require those vendors to do their own supply web analysis and make that part of the deliverables coming back so that there's common knowledge about how to best understand this very complicated global network. Specifically about acquisition, is there something an agency needs to do about acquisition in their acquisition shops to make sure that they're equipped to think about this from a supply network? Or, or since it's thinking, is this more cultural than anything, Greg? I, I think it's more cultural uh, than anything. The tools are there. Uh, to allow the procurement organizations working with the program offices to emphasize the importance now of this global supply network and, and make it part uh, of the valuation factors of the considerations moving forward and make it part of the performance reviews moving forward so that you keep a constant eye on this so you get the earliest indications you can so that you can take remedial and corrective action. So then let's flip the other side of this. What are you advising your clients that serve government agencies to do? What do they need to do about their own supply networks? And what, are they, what should they be doing to serve government agencies better from a supply network perspective? So I think there's a couple of things uh, that we're working with clients and would recommend companies do. First and foremost, make sure they're taking care of their people. Uh, really the ability for companies to ensure the safety of their employees as well as their customers is going to be paramount. It's the right thing to do from a leadership perspective. It's the right thing to do to expedite the recovery. We're also telling them clearly upfront and early, go talk to your government procurement office and your program office. Uh, there's not going to be many things that won't be impacted by COVID-19. Don't wait until things turn bad, till they get so far bad that you've really got a huge mess. Go talk early to the program and procurement side. If you don't have any impacts yet, talk to them about what you've done to mitigate those impacts. That's a great story. 
but you need to engage early in that conversation. They're going to be open to that. They understand there's some things that have changed. There's changes clause and contracts that allow for that. But go in and start that dialogue early. We have about 30 seconds left, Greg. What would you watch as this all unfolds in the way that agencies particularly respond to changes about the way that they think about their supply networks? Well, I, I think some things that agencies are going to do is they think about their supply network, they think about even their workforce network. Uh, if they're going to continue to be teleworked, how does that impact them as an organization, their collaboration, their strategic visioning? Uh, how does that impact how they deal with the vendor community? Right? There's not much our government does that's not enabled by industry. So how do we keep that connection moving forward? While at the same time, understanding we're in an environment uh, that is more than just about any individual company or agency. For example, I saw Metro said they won't be at full capacity probably until next spring. You know, there's a lot of impacts uh, that will affect organizations, agencies, and companies as they move forward. Greg Giddens, excellent insight as always, my friend. It's great to see you. Thanks, Francis. Take care. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.